Well, good morning. It is great to see you. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors. Really glad uh, that you're with us this morning. I, I do hope you feel welcomed uh, into our community. And if you would like to get uh, plugged more deeply into the life of our community, we'd love to help you do so. Uh, so talk to us. Talk to anyone at the Connect table, people you see around. We'd love uh, to connect you further. We're, we're really glad you're here no matter uh, how you come this morning or, or where you come from. We're finishing up this morning a three-part series on generosity. We've been looking at what it means to live our whole lives invested in loving God and loving others. This morning, we are addressing generosity and money. Again, I have to say that I've benefited greatly in my study of this topic from some personal pastoral friends, uh, from Andy Stanley, from a number of other good books I've been reading. And I know as soon as I say generosity and money, there are all kind of emotions being felt. Worry, fear, maybe for some of you excitement, curiosity. Some of you are ready to exit the doors right now and uh, your alarm just went off and you got to leave. Right? You, you, know, you didn't know we were talking about money this morning. Well, if you're new to our church, I have to tell you, I said this three weeks ago uh, when we started this series, that in the five years of our church's existence, we've only preached on money two times. And those times were when we were, we were in series going through portions of the scripture where the text called and demanded for us to address the issue. We've never intentionally talked about money here at Christ Central. We've actually been very mindful of not wanting people to feel like we're a church that's after your money. But as I've studied and prayed and prepared for this series, I, I've had the conviction as a pastor that perhaps we haven't been as faithful as we could be in engaging this extremely important issue of money. Uh, one pastor said it this way, how we relate to money is a central issue of discipleship, okay, right? I think it, this is a topic that's really under-focused on in the church. Greed and stewardship seem to be glossed over as too personal to touch from the pulpit. I think it should be much more a focal part of the church's message. I think this quote gets at one of the reasons that we at times may feel like it's better to not talk about money. Money feels too personal. It feels like it's a topic that's untouchable for many of us, right? We all know that you don't go up to someone and ask them, how much do you make in your current job? We don't ask people how much they've saved in their savings account or how much money they have in their retirement account. It's too personal. In the past few weeks, there have been some of the richest sports contracts signed in history. Bryce Harper, $330 million dollars. Mike Trout, $430 million. These numbers plastered all over the news for all of us to read and know. But man, if our finances were put in Christ Central Church's weekly email or posted up on Facebook, we'd all freak out because fear dominates this issue of money. Maybe you're afraid of what people might think about you if they know how much money you have. Maybe you're afraid of what people might think of you if they know how little money you have. Maybe you're afraid of what people might think of you if they know how much you spend or how much you give or how much you save. So in our fear, we all shrink away and we hide from one another in this discussion of money. Another reason I think that we feel it may be better to not talk about money is that the church gets a bad rap around this issue. And some of it is very warranted. Prosperity gospel preachers or health and wealth preachers preach the message that if you believe and you have enough faith, if you're generous and you give, God will repay your generosity and give you more money and more success. That blessing and favor from God 
is equivalent to more money and more success. And this preaching has done incredible damage to the church in America and to the church all around the world. It's one of the reasons we here at Christ Central during our offering time remind you every week that there's no amount of money that you can give that purchases anything from God, that he gives his love and his grace freely. And in the same light, there are churches that have misused money, that have funneled money through the church for personal and greedy use. And there have been churches that have not been places of integrity around money. And these are some of the reasons it may be better for us not to talk about this issue. So why talk about this money, uh, this issue of money? I've already alluded to one reason. It's to make something we're afraid of and feels untouchable a normal part of the discussion of being a disciple of Jesus. Just like we talk about walking with God in relationship in word and in prayer, uh, the call for us to love our neighbor, to serve others, or to be faithful to our families and, and, and to our friends, we have to talk about how we handle our money. It must be a discipleship issue uh, and, a, and a discipleship norm for us. So whether you're a new Christian or you're in the youth group, or you're a college student, and no matter where you are socioeconomically, generosity is the call of a Christian. There's another reason for us to talk about it. The vast majority of us are rich. I know the vast majority of us don't feel rich, but we are. And most of us feel like we're generous, but we're not. Do you know how much it, it takes to put you in the richest 1% of the world? How much money you need to make to be considered in the 1% of the richest in the world? $37,000 a year puts you in the 1% of the richest in the world. And we live in the richest nation at the richest time in history. Now, when I say you're rich, I know all of us want to be like, no, 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 no. And we want to start comparing ourselves to other people. I'm not rich. That person's rich. Because rich is always the other person. Rich is having as much extra as the person who has more than you. Rich is having more than you currently have. So you can be rich and not know it, feel like it, or act like it. So let me give you a test if you're rich. It's a test to take. Have you ever stood in front of your closet and had a hard time deciding which outfit to wear? Have you ever traded in a perfectly good car for a better car? Have you ever gone shopping just to relax? Have you ever complained that your internet was too slow? Now listen, I, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for being rich. I'm just trying to wake you up to the reality of being rich. The Bible does not condemn being rich. Abraham, Isaiah, Solomon, the Old Testament were wealthy. In the New Testament, Lydia, Zacchaeus, and presumably Matthew were wealthy. The Bible actually always assumes that there are the rich. The passage that I'm about to read, the Apostle Paul writes, as for the rich. The question is how are we doing at being rich? The last reason and the main reason that we've got to talk about money is that Jesus talks about it a lot. 20% of the time Jesus talks in the scriptures, he's talking about money. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Jesus knows that money is often the doorway to the heart. Now, I know I've said a few times that we're not after your money here at Christ Central, that we're after your heart. And that's true, we are. But that doesn't mean we won't ask you to give. 
We actually ask you every week to give during the weekly offering. But our asking for you to be generous is, to, is not to profit personally. It's for God to shape and form your heart that you might be wholly invested in God's glory and his mission to the world. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once wrote this. There are three conversions every Christian must go through. The conversion of the mind, the conversion of the heart, and the conversion of the pocketbook. So that's a long intro to engage this topic of money in 1 Timothy 6. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand. As we give attention to God's word, I'm going to read 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10, and then 17 to 19. This is God's word to us. Now there's great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would take your word, which is a gift, the generosity of yourself to reveal yourself to us. And I pray that the spirit of God would illumine our minds and our hearts, that you would transform us, that we would understand your great generosity towards us, that we might leave here as a more generous people. It's in your name I pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, in 1783, Edward Jenner had a crazy idea. And all over Europe, smallpox lurked and it spread. It was one of the biggest killers of the day, bringing nearly to death 80% of children who caught it. So when news of smallpox broke, most families hid their children, secluded them to protect them. Jenner had a different approach. He thought that it was possible to take steps to make someone immune to the disease. So instead of hiding from smallpox, he moved toward it. And his idea was to expose people to cowpox, which is a smaller version, a weaker version of smallpox. And, and all who followed his treatment seemed untouchable to smallpox, no matter how severe the outbreak. And his medical papers, Edward Jenner, invented a new word, vaccine, based on the Latin word for cow, vaca. Now, thanks to Jenner, some of the nastiest diseases in the world are under control thanks to vaccines. For affluent people today, for the rich, there is a threat as devastating as smallpox in Jenner's day, and it's called affluenza. Not influenza, but affluenza, and it's rampant, and there's great danger in it. Symptoms are not always obvious, but they'll sneak up on you like an invisible growth that goes undetected while it eats away at your insides. So instead of hiding from it, let's move toward it. Let's see how we might immunize ourselves from it. I think we've got to understand the danger of wealth. We've got to understand the declaration about wealth. And then there's some things we can do. So there's a danger, a declaration, and some things to do that will help us 
and this disease. The first is the danger of wealth. Look at 1 Timothy 6, 17 again. It says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. This is Paul's warning label placed on the stick of dynamite called wealth. Warning, wealth is powerful. And there's great potential for good because God does and use money for his kingdom purposes, but there's also great danger, so handle it with care. And the danger is that it can lead to being haughty which is another way of saying it can lead to arrogance. I don't think there's a lot of illustration needed here. I think, think we can all imagine people in our minds who, who are rich and arrogant, someone who has money and they think they're better than other, people's because, other people because of their wealth. I think the second danger listed in verse 17 is the greatest threat for, for us. As people set their hopes on riches. Set their hopes on riches. A great danger in being wealthy is that you place your hope in money. Notice, again, God doesn't condemn money. It's a renunciation of hope in money. 1 Timothy 6.10, one of the most misquoted verses in all the Bible, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Money's not evil. It is the love of money. It is trusting in money to give you something that only God can give you that is evil. Proverbs 18, verse 11 says, a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. It's a strong city. The temptation is that we find security in our money, that we believe it can protect us, that it, that it can give us comfort, it gives us hope, it gives us certainty about the future. And the thing about money is that it can help us. It actually does get us out of binds at times. Many of our country's most wealthy were just indicted on college admission fraud paying large amounts of money to get their children into prestigious universities. Money can be used to get what we want at times. But notice the word imagination in Proverbs. It is in our imagination. Because money can do this until it can. Money cannot protect you from death. Money, can, money cannot protect you from sickness. It cannot protect you from marriage issues or family issues. It cannot protect you from loneliness. See, MasterCard's right. There are some things money can't buy. It can't buy health. It can't buy back the hurt you've experienced. It can't rebuild broken relationships. It can't buy peace with God, and it cannot buy contentment. The danger of wealth is that we place our hope in riches. Let's look secondly at the declaration about wealth. Verse 17 again, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We are to set our hope on God who richly provides. There's a declaration here that is actually found on every page of scripture. And if you get this one thing, it will transform your financial life. It will actually transform your entire life. You ready for it? It's this thing. God owns everything. God owns everything. He owns it all. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all the tea in China. He owns all the oil in Saudi Arabia, all the gold in Fort Knox. He owns all of your stuff and all of my stuff, all of our talents, all of our money. It is his. We are called to be his money managers, his stewards. Now, you might bristle at that. And I made this money, Daniel. 
Uh, It's mine. I can use it how I want to use it. I can claim it. And in one sense, maybe. But on a deeper level, everything you have, you have because God gave it to you. No, 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 Daniel, I built this business. I've, I've worked hard and I've been purposeful to save this money. You did. But you were given opportunities. Born into families. Families that had opportunities given to you, education given to you. Even your intelligence was a gift given to you. And you were born in the richest nation at the richest time in history. Think about that. If Warren Buffett or Bill Gates had been born in 13th century Mongolia, they would not be where they are today. God gave it to them, and God has given it to us. And we thank him for it. And therefore, we're his money managers, using all that he has entrusted to us for his sake. Now, here's the thing. As as we are entrusted with all that he's given to us, we are to then seek first his kingdom, And to seek to see the kingdom of God come to earth as it is in heaven. And when we understand the kingdom of God in regards to our money, it's quite liberating. Because this means you can build your businesses. You can work hard at your job. You can wisely save for your family. You can give generously. You can spend your money and enjoy the good gifts that God has given. Because all of these things are important in the kingdom of God. But we must know that God owns it all. And he has entrusted to us to use it for kingdom purposes. Let's continue to move towards this disease of affluenza. I'm going to get a little bit more practical here and give you some to-dos. Look at 1 Timothy 6.18. Paul writes, They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. Three to-dos that can act like a vaccine in this love of money. The first, do good works. Paul says, be rich in good works. This is to give of yourselves, the gifts that you have to give your personality, which God uniquely created and loves and delights in, to give your gifts of administration or of service or of hospitality or of leadership or of friendship, to give your gift of time, to give the gift of your possessions. We give generously. And when we do, it feels good because we're living into who God made us to be. So do good works. Secondly, do gratitude. 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, Paul writes, there's great gain in godliness with contentment. Discontentment is a longing for more. Discontentment is a feeling of lack. It's a demand uh, not for a need, but a demand for a want. And being thankful for all that God has given us is a way to counter discontent and to be more content. To say, God, thank you for all that you've given me. If you do this as a family, but I know many families will do it at Thanksgiving. Uh, they'll get around the table, and one time a year, let's all go around and share what we're thankful for. Uh, we do it in the Mason house, and every year I'm like, this one meal a year, I leave feeling so content and thankful that God has given us what he's given to us. What, what if every day of our lives we listed out to God all the things we were thankful for? that we just had a thankful heart at all times, I think it would prevent us from living like consumers. I think it would prevent us from living like things are mine, which just leads to discontentment. See, hear me, we don't have a money problem. We have a contentment problem. Bred by a lack of gratitude for not seeing God as the owner and giver of all things. 
So do gratitude. And lastly, do generous giving. Verse 18, Paul says, be generous. Be generous. Okay, what does that mean? I think generosity is obviously different for everyone because everybody's in different places. Everyone in here is in different places socioeconomically. Some of you, I realize, have debts and credit card bills that you can't seem to get out from under your head. Some of, some of you are wondering about paying your next light bill or where you might live. Some of you have taken loans out to pay for school. Others of you are, are planning and saving for retirement. Others of you are thinking about buying a second or a third home. And regardless of where you are, God's call is to be generous. What does it look like for you to be generous? I want to suggest that you're to have a plan. You've got to have a plan. We have to have a plan. Prayerful, thoughtful, deliberate plan about our generosity. Because if you don't have a plan, that's your plan. It will dictate your giving. Can I tell you many people's plans and what has often been my plan? Let me live and get by this month and get some, some things that maybe I want or I, that, I, that I need, but then a few things that I want, then I'll save a little bit and then I'll give what's left over. It's live, save, give. But what if our prayer and our plan was let's give and then we can save and then out of that, let's live. That's the plan. And, and so let me give you three Ps for this plan. The first is percentage. Percentage. Does the Bible say that we should give a certain percentage? Is this 10% tithe that maybe you've heard before, is, is, does that carry to today? Well, the Old Testament does mention the tithe and talks about this 10%. The New Testament doesn't use that language. The New Testament calls us to be generous. But I think 10% is a good starting point. And I know for some of you that feels like a lot because you're strapped month to month. And for some of you, you maybe have never given before. And, and so let me just tell you, what is the next step for you to stretch yourself in, in giving and in generosity? In the book, God and Money, John Cortines and Gregory Bomber point out that during the different feasts of the, for Israel in the Old Testament, God's people actually gave financially during those feasts, and they gave the tithe, which means that the Old Testament people of God actually gave close to 23% of their money to the Lord for the purpose of caring for the poor and furthering the ministry of the gospel. Cortines and Balmer also reference Peter Singer, who's a philosopher and ethicist at Princeton University. He's also an atheist. And Singer writes and speaks a lot about altruism and being generous to others, and this is what Singer writes. He says, the charitable man, the charitable man be praised, but the man who is not charitable is not condemned. People do not feel in any way ashamed or guilty about spending money on new clothes or a new car instead of giving it to famine relief. This way of looking at the matter cannot be justified. It's Peter Singer. And Peter Singer gives 20 to 25% of his income away. An atheist professor at Princeton motivated by nothing but utilitarian concern for his fellow man, no belief in an afterlife, no belief in a God who calls him to be generous. How much more should Christians be generous who believe that the best life and the great life is yet to come and who believe in a God who calls us to be generous and to give? It's a percentage. And the second P about the plan is priority. Make it the first thing you do. Make giving be the first thing you do. 
If you say you're going to give X amount, don't wait till the end of the month to give because what's going to happen is that you're going to spend and the needs are going to pop up and by the end of the month, you're not going to have what you said you wanted to give. Make it a priority. The first thing you do, you give. The third P about this plan is progressive. Make it progressive. Continue praying about what the next steps of generosity might mean for you. Continue asking God what it means to give more. Maybe it's increasing your percentage over time. Maybe it's setting aside a percentage to be spontaneous when needs arise. Maybe it's setting a salary that you'll never surpass and then giving away the rest so that as your salary increases, your giving increases. And don't think you've arrived. Don't think you're so generous. Because generosity is a spiritual discipline that every one of us will continually be growing in, just like every other spiritual area of our life. Now, this should be applied, I must say, to the church as well, Christ Central Church. We should pray and hope to be a generous church. So in transparency, right now we give 10% of all money that comes in to our church away to local and global partners who are sharing the gospel in word and deed. We also give away another close to 10% to external outreach that is done through our church. As a pastor, I pray that we continue to grow in our generosity, that we continue to be progressive in what we give away and how much we give away. Can you imagine what kind of things we might do and the people we might be if every single person here and our church gave with a plan? Percentage, priority, and progressive. Imagine what we might be able to do for the glory of God and the good of the city and the good of the world. I hope you've heard in this series that the ultimate reason that we as Christians are to be generous is that, the gener- is that generosity is the very nature and character of our God. That God sent his son to give. The son and the father and the spirit give us their love, give us forgiveness, give us redemption. That our God is a giver, not a taker. And if we believe that God has given us everything and that he owns it all, then giving will be our way of living. 1 Timothy 6, 19 tells us the result of being a wealthy person who gives generously. Look at verse 19. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, generous giving leads us to experience the richness of life here and in the life to come. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Blessed, happy is the one who gives. That we will be happy and blessed in this life and in the future life when Christ returns. Theologian Shaler Matthew says if it's more blessed to give than to receive, then most of us are content to let the other fellow have a greater blessing. May this not be true of us. Riches won't last forever. May we be a people who are gripped by an eternal kingdom that will last forever so that money loses its grip on us, that we might be immune from this disease of affluenza, and that we might live radically generous lives. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know how generous you are, that you own all things and you've given us all that we have. Mostly you've given us Jesus, you've given us salvation, you've given us uh, 
participation in a kingdom that will never perish. Oh, God, help our lives not to be driven by, by the desire for more and help us not to be discontent. But, Lord, help us to be so satisfied, so content. Help us to have a vision of a kingdom that's moving that we might live lives of purpose and mission as we give generously for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.